We tend to be a little intimidated these days. I mentioned last week that one of the purposes of this sermon series in my mind is to make you proud in the best sense of the word, proud to be Christians. And we tend to be a little embarrassed about our faith these days. You know, everybody's down on the church and people aren't much interested in the Lord and all those things. And yet we realize, uh, particularly in the opening of the book of Romans, that people are not perhaps being entirely honest with us when they say that they don't believe uh, in God, that they don't believe in the realities of the Christian faith. And so today we're going to talk about what we all, that is including, you know, the university professors who say, I don't believe these things, including your friends who say, I don't believe these things. This is what we all believe what we all always knew to be true and romans is wonderful this way i have to read a good little section of the opening of romans to do this message this morning so bear with me as we go through four or five slides from romans one and a little bit of romans two the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth and unrighteousness hold the truth meaning hold firmly, as in hold down, like keep a hold on this because it's going to get out of control. They hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is evident in them, for God has shown it to them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Invisible things, clearly seen. Isn't that interesting? It's invisible and clear. Invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Even his eternal power and Godhead, we would say Godhood, Godhood, so that they are without excuse. Because when they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. They knew him, but they didn't want to glorify him. They knew him and did not glorify him as God, and neither were thankful, but became vain, that is, empty in their imaginations. And their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise. Tell everybody how smart they are. They became fools. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. This has to do with idolatry. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie and worship and serve the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause, God gave them up unto vile affections. For even their women changed the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burning their lust one toward another. Men with men, working that which is shameful, and receiving in themselves that reward of their error, which was appropriate. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. I know about God, but I don't like to think about that. As they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to an unapproved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malevolence, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, spiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents without understanding, covenant breakers without natural affection, implacable, they can't be placated, they can't be pleased, implacable, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, they know, who knowing the judgment of God, that those who commit such things are worthy of death, they not only do them themselves, but have pleasure in the people who do them. And similarly, in Romans 2, verse 14, when the Gentiles, uh, these are the non-Jewish people all around the world, 
when the Gentiles, who do not have the law of God, do by nature. See, it's just in their nature. It's their human nature. When they do these things by nature that are contained in the commandments of God, these, having no access to the law of God, are a law all by themselves in their own hearts. Their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts, meanwhile, accusing or else excusing one another. Accusing like, hey, you can't do that or, hey, yeah, you're right, that's okay. That's happening even if they've never seen a Bible. And we just have to have this cross-reference from Second Peter 3 because it is so appropriate, so similar. And Peter says largely the same thing. He's talking about why people don't know. You know why don't they believe? And he says here, this they are willingly ignorant of. They don't want to know. They're willingly ignorant of these things. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old. And the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Why don't they know? Why don't they believe? Oh, they are willingly ignorant. And there is no man more blind than the man who simply will not see, right? And so here's what we've seen in this little section of Scripture, just in the opening of Romans. We saw that we all, all the people in the whole wide world, we all always knew from nature and from conscience several things. We knew the truth. That is, they hold the truth, hold down the truth, hold firm the truth, like don't let it get away. It's going to cause a problem. They hold the truth in unrighteousness. We also see that all the people everywhere, they know the invisible things of God because our text says the invisible things of him are clearly seen, even his eternal power and his godhood. So they see these invisible things, and they know. The text also says they know God himself. It says, when they knew God, they did not want to glorify him as God. Uh, And they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. But they know. They do know. And we see that they know something about the judgment of God. All the people everywhere around the whole world, even if they've never seen a Bible, They know about the judgment of God. It says, who knowing the judgment of God, it bothers them like, ooh, this is not going to end well. They know the judgment of God. And then we see they also even know the commandments of God because chapter 2, verse 15 says, the law is written in their hearts and their conscience bears witness of this in their thoughts, accuse or excuse. So they don't know all the commandments of God, but they know that something's not quite right. And this is what all the people all around the world know. If we go to Ivy League universities and somebody says, Christianity is for losers, they still know all of these things. When you hear that, you should say, not out loud, but in your heart, you should say, I hear what you're saying, but I know you don't believe that. And that's the truth. They don't honestly believe that. Not in their honest, quiet moments. All right, what we always knew, because we look at nature, and if we look at nature honestly, we all know. Everybody knows. And these are some of the things that we're reading about again one more time. Romans 1.19, because that which may be known of God is evident in them. See, like, I'm looking, and something's happening in me. Is evident in them, for God has shown it to them. And... The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. I see it. I understand it. I don't like it, but I get it. Even his eternal power and godhood, 
so that they are without excuse. Nobody will ever be able to stand before God and say, I had no idea that there was a God. I just didn't know. The Bible says, oh yeah, you did too. And that's why there will never be an excuse. You did too know. In the 1400s, the king of the Aztecs told the conquistadors this. Truly the gods that I am adoring, what are they but images of stone without speech or feeling? They could not have made the beauty of the heaven, the sun, the moon, the stars which light the earth with its countless streams, its foundations and waters. There must be some God, invisible and unknown, who is the universal creator. See, worship idols and, you know, the Aztecs and Mayans were famous for their cruelty and all those things, human sacrifices. They said, there must be a God that we're not getting here. And they always say, well, how do you know that? They never had a Bible. So what gave him that idea? An Eskimo once said to a missionary, certainly there must be a being who made all these things. He must be very good, too. Uh, Did I but know him? How I would love and honor him. Like, who told you that? You don't have a Bible. How do you know that there must be a God bigger than the one that you're dealing with? Who told you that? The answer is, ah, God has been telling him in his heart when he looks at creation. There must be a being who made all of these things. There is a watch. There must be a watchmaker. Well, of course, Aztecs and Eskimos, those are primitive cultures. Let's go to Mike Massimino. An astronaut who still lives to this day, and he is the one who did the repair on the Hubble telescope, which included a spacewalk, and uh, he did real well on his time, and so he had extra time, and they said, well, why don't you just hang out there for a while? I mean, who gets to do this? So he did. He just hung out in space for a while outside a spacecraft, and this is what he said. He is uh, 350 miles above Earth and looking at Earth. And he says, Earth was so beautiful that I actually started to get emotional. He says he had to fight back tears at one point, and you must not cry inside your space helmet. That's no good. Um, So he says, Earth was so beautiful that I actually started to get emotional. I thought, this is what heaven must look like. Maybe this is heaven. Heaven is supposed to be this beautiful, perfect place. And from up there, I couldn't imagine anything more beautiful, more perfect than this planet. It really is a paradise. If you are a believer, seeing our planet from space would make you think that whoever created this for us really loves us because they gave us a very nice home to live in. We were given the nicest house on the block. And you look in the the drabness, black and white and gray world of space, and then there's this beautiful blue and green and white marble, and nothing is like that. You say, well, it's just because you human beings don't see a very big light spectrum. So, you know, everything looks gray and black and white to you and you just have a limited view. But but however you account for it, the drabness and then that beautiful blue marble, it's wonderful. And Mike Massimino is not a primitive. And that's how he felt when he saw it. Anthony flew, atheist, converted to the idea that there is a God. We only hope that he converted to the Christian faith, but he never said that he did. I hope he did. But he was saying why he could no longer believe that there's no God. And he was talking about the um, famous analogy of monkeys typing away and getting a Shakespearean sonnet if they just had enough time. 
I mean, enough paper, enough typewriters, enough monkeys. They say, look how many planets and galaxies there are out there in the universe. I mean, we have infinite time just about. Eventually, they would accidentally type Shakespeare. Anthony Flew is talking about that here. He says, uh, let's take one sonnet of Shakespeare that has 488 letters, which is not very long, right? 488, not so long. He says, here's how the math works out. You end up with 26 because there are 26 letters in the alphabet. So you need 26 multiplied by itself 488 times because there are 488 letters. Now, remember, we don't want to just get the letters. We have to have the letters in the same order so that they hit upon the same ideas that Shakespeare had, right? So you end up with 26 multiplied by itself 488 times or 26 to the 488th power. Or in other words, in base 10, 10 to the 690th power. Now, the number of particles in the universe, not grains of sand, I'm talking about protons, electrons, and neutrons. So, you know, we talk about, well, the number of grains of sand in the universe. We're not even talking about that. You know, a grain of sand at the atomic level, and we're not even talking about the atoms, we're talking about the pieces of an atom. So he says, now, the number of particles in the universe is 10 to the 80th power. 10 to the 80th is one with 80 zeros after it. 10 to the 690th power is what we're trying to get with Shakespeare and 488 letters um, in the right order. So 10 to the 690th power is one with 690 zeros after it. But all the particles in the universe would only be one with 80 zeros, and we're trying to get one to 690th power, right? And so there are not enough particles in the universe, the whole universe, to write down the trials of the monkeys trying to get Shakespeare. The universe would have to be 10 to the 600th times larger. So you say, well, the monkeys would eventually get it. There are not enough atoms in the entire universe, according to most calculations, for them to ever do it. And Anthony Flew says, and yet the world thinks the monkeys get it right every time. So people say, but there are so many worlds. We're not even talking about the number of worlds. We're talking about the number of atoms and not even just that, the pieces of an atom. Unbelievable. Romans 1.19 says, Because that which may be known of God is evident in them, for God has shown it to them. Because the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhood, so that they are without excuse. When you looked at that world, what did you think? What did you learn? And the answer cannot be, I learned nothing at all. The answer has to be, I always suspected that you were there. Richard Wurmbrandt, uh, in the Cold War years, talks about this Russian couple, atheist couple in Russia. I met a Russian couple, both sculptors. When I spoke to them about God, they answered, no, God does not exist. We are godless. But we will tell you something interesting that happened to us. Once we worked on a statue of Stalin. During the work, my wife asked me, how about the thumb? If we did not have an opposing thumb, if our fingers were like our toes... We could not hold a hammer, mallet, tool. Human life would be impossible without this little thumb. Now, who made the thumb? 
we both learn Marxism in school and know that heaven and earth exist by themselves. But if God did not create heaven and earth, if he created only the thumb, he would be praiseworthy for this little thing. We praise Edison and Bell and Stevenson who invented the electric bulb telephone railway and other things. But why should we not praise the one who has invented the thumb? If Edison had not had a thumb, he would have invented nothing. It is only right to worship God who made the thumb. Well, the husband became very angry when the wife talked about these things. He said, don't speak stupidities. You have learned that there is no God. You do not know if the house is bugged. We can get into trouble. Get into your mind once and for all. There is no God. In heaven, there is nobody. And his wife replied, well, this is an even greater wonder. If in heaven there is an almighty God in whom in stupidity our forefathers believed, it would then be only natural that we should have thumbs. An almighty God can do everything. So he can make a thumb too. But if in heaven there is nobody, I will worship with all my heart the nobody who has made the thumb. So they became worshipers of the nobody. Their faith in this nobody increased with time, believing him to be the creator not only of the thumb, but also the stars and flowers and children and everything beautiful in life. This couple was unspeakably happy to hear from me that they had believed rightly that in heaven there is really a God who is a spirit of love, wisdom, truth, and power who so loved them that he sent his only begotten son to sacrifice himself for them on the cross. They had been believers in God, not knowing that they were so. I had the great privilege of taking them one step further to the experience of salvation and redemption. Romans says, That which may be known of God is evident in them, for God has shown it to them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhood, so that they are without excuse. And I've told you before about Gene Nile. I love this story. It is so accurate to the way the human heart works. So one Sunday when I was a junior in high school, I urged my pal, George Champion, hey, let's spend the day in the Everglades. He lived in Florida. In the Everglades, snake hunting. And we've been snake and orchid hunting off and on for a year or so together and used to sell the live water moccasins and rattlers to the snake farms more for fun than for money. And we got pretty good at the lore of the Everglades as we journeyed deeper into the trackless and ageless swamps. We plunged on into the unknown, into the cool, dark cypress cathedrals where the primeval silence was only broken by deer and otter and wild turkeys, where incredibly hued and delicately formed orchids gracefully waved from every mossy bough, where the stillness was majestic and powerful and eternal, and where the sweet smells of wildflowers and bubbling streams and moss mingled and lured us tantalizingly deeper, and there something touched me or someone. For I began to feel for the first time in my life that there was meaning and warmth and beauty and an eternal quality to life which lay somehow right where I was standing or maybe just beyond the next hammock. It was right there and I could almost touch it and feel it almost, not quite. And George felt it too and was moved by it and so he came back every weekend again and again for a year. I was a little boy playing under the very throne of Almighty God and never knew it. 
I could sense his footprints there all around me, but I didn't know to look up. Nobody ever told me to. Nobody ever told me that there would be anyone there, even if I did look up. And a great yearning and longing began to gnaw a hole in my heart, a big God-shaped hole, which will destroy a man if it's not filled in time. And there is so little time. Because that which may be known of God is evident in them. Because God has shown it to them. And the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhood, so that they're without excuse. They do know. They do know. In 1949, remember the story of Louis Zamperini. He got back from World War II. He was in a POW camp. Everybody wanted to hear his great story. They keep offering him alcohol. He has PTSD. Now he's become an alcoholic on top of his PTSD. His life is spiraling out of control. His wife begs him. In 1949, Billy Graham is having his first ever, first ever big evangelistic event. Cynthia says to Louis, we have to go on a Sunday night. We have to go. He says, no, no, no. But finally he caves in and he goes. And this is what he hears in the uh, Los Angeles crusade, 1949. Billy Graham said, if you look into the heavens tonight on this beautiful California night, I see the stars and I can see the footprints of God. I think to myself, my father, my heavenly father hung them there with the power of his omnipotent hand. And he's not too busy running the whole universe to count the hairs on my head and see a sparrow when it falls because God is interested in me. God spoke in creation. And Louis is listening to this and he's remembering his biographer says what was in his mind while he heard Billy Graham say these things. Louis remembered the day when he and Phil slowly dying on the life raft because his plane was shot down. Slowly dying on the life raft and they had slid into the doldrums where the ocean is perfectly calm. There's no wind. Above, the sky had been a swirl of light. Below, the stilled ocean had mirrored the sky, its clarity broken only by a leaping fish. Awed to silence, forgetting his thirst and his hunger, forgetting that he was dying, Louis had only known gratitude. That day, he had believed what lay around them was the work of infinitely broad, benevolent hands, a gift of compassion. In the years since, that thought had been lost. But he also remembered while Billy Graham was preaching how when his airplane crashed, he was all tangled up in these cords and wires. And then suddenly, for no reason, he was free and he could swim. He remembered when the Japanese fighters were strafing his rubber raft and somehow they missed him. He remembered being in the POW camp with the most wicked, sadistic uh, prison guards. And he survived that. And in his mind, listening to Billy Graham that night, he said the impossible had actually happened in his life. And that impossible was God. What we all always knew, if we were just going to look at nature honestly, is that there is a God, that there is Godhood and power. And he's there. We also know it because we listen to our consciences in honest moments. And there's a lot in Romans about this too, right? Romans 1.18, they hold the truth in unrighteousness. They just had a sense 
that there is God. They hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is evident in them, for God has shown it to them. And when they knew God, they did know. They did not glorify him. They did not like to retain God in their knowledge. I don't want to think about this. They knew the judgment of God, that this is bad, and those who do these things are going to be punished. They knew the judgment of God, but they had pleasure in these things anyway, and pleasure in the people who promoted these things. In Romans 2.14, the Gentiles who did not have the law, they didn't have the Bible. They did by nature. They still had this idea, this is right and this is wrong. And when we do wrong, something bad's going to happen. By nature, they did the things contained in the law. They were a law unto themselves, showing the work of the law written in their hearts. They knew it was written in their hearts. Their consciences also bear witness to this. And their thoughts in the meantime, accusing or else excusing this conduct, that conduct. Christopher Hitchens, who died just a few years ago, one of the famous young atheists of our generation, he said, everybody has had the experience at some point when they feel that there's more to life than just matter. That's a big admission right there. That's right. Everybody. What we all know, because the Bible says they did not like to retain this knowledge of God, but they had it. In the Los Angeles Times this past May, author Lynn Hightower was talking about demon possession. And the title of her article was, Exorcism is something we can't quite quit. We want to think, oh, that's just superstition. That's for backwards people. And yet it just keeps coming up. It never goes away. And that was the premise of her article. She reminded us that a recent poll shows nearly half the people in the United States believe that demons exist. And you know, it's a very, very short walk between believing that demons exist and believing that hell exists because they're all tied together in our minds. And once you believe in demons and a hell, you know you're already believing in God, right? It's all there. Think, well, we don't want to believe those things anymore. It comes up in the world of psychiatry it comes up in anthropology it comes up all the time helen keller who had some very aberrant views of theology got this part right you remember the story when she she didn't understand that there was a language she says my earliest memories are all about tactile touching things i knew what it was to feel hungry i knew what it was to feel tired i knew what it was to touch things i didn't have any concept that there was language. Then Ann Sullivan came and tried to teach her about water, and and Helen Keller kept getting confused between water and cup. Like, she can't tell the difference. She's confusing it. Language isn't working. So that dramatic scene, which is a true scene, you can go visit, and the pump is still there. She takes Ann outside and pumps the handle of the well pump, and the water is gushing over her hand, and she's tapping, this is water, this is water. And finally, Anne gets it. Oh, this is water. And then that day, she learned like 10 words. And ever after that, more and more words every day. And she said, once she realized there was language, then there was a whole world open to her. And then the question was, where did it all come from? And they're trying to tell her. And Anne Sullivan said, it's God. And tapped on her hand, this is God. And Helen Keller says, I always knew he was there, but didn't know his name. Like, well, how do you know? you're, You're deaf and blind. How do you know? I just always did know. It was written in their hearts. It was evident because God has shown it to them. Charles Common uh, wrote the devotional guide some of you are probably familiar with called Streams in the Desert, one of the most successful and well-known devotional guides in, in Christian literature. 
He was also a missionary, and he and his wife and some others went to Japan one time. And he said they climbed this mountain. He said we, we climbed to its top and counted 42 towns and villages that they could see from the mountaintop, utterly unreached with the gospel, without God and without hope. And at our first service, an old woman listened as if her life depended on it. She came and said, I always knew that there ought to be a God like that. Describing Jesus dying on the cross. I always knew that there ought to be a God who loved us. I always knew. And you know, this is not the only story like that. George Hatley is a missionary kid from China. And he remembers being in China and his dad using a magic lantern projector. You know what that is? Um, Imagine it looks a little bit like a camera and you put inside a kerosene lamp and you make you take a little piece of glass and you paint on it whatever you want. And then you put it in front of the lamp and a magnifying glass and it shows it on a screen or a white wall, whatever. And so it'd be like a primitive slide projector. And Headley's dad had somebody make, you know, three crosses on a piece of glass and put it in front of the kerosene lamp and the magnification lens. And, and tell the gospel story in China. He said, even as a small boy, I knew the pictures were pretty crude. But my father would explain and expound on the pictures. And I can remember the three crosses being shown on the screen. And there flashed before us three crucified men, two thieves, and between them, the Lord of love. And all at once, an old woman got up, stumbled forward with her feet bound up in cloth because she was too poor to afford shoes. And she cried out to his father, I always knew there must be a God like that. Same as in Japan. Wherever you go all over the world, how do they know that? Why do they know that? And the answer is, because God has written it in their hearts. They know. He has made them know. And they might not like to retain God in their knowledge. But they do have God in their knowledge. Madeline Murray O'Hare, I say this periodically because I'm so um, pleased with it all. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, it was all about Madeline Murray O'Hare being in the news because now she's going to make it uh, impossible for us students to bring our Bibles to class. And now she's in the news because she's going to make it impossible for a Christian teacher to pray before school starts. Madeline Murray O'Hare is calling all kinds of trouble the world's most famous atheist. Well, she was being interviewed in 1974 by a Christian named Edward Plowman, and he knew that when she was young, she went to a really solid Presbyterian church. I mean, a church that all of us would feel comfortable in. But she just threw it all off. She's not interested. And so Edward Plowman is talking to her and says, is there anything that you haven't jettisoned from those days? Anything that you're still attached to? And he says, for a moment, the arrogance and bitterness disappeared. And she smiled. The music, she said. She leaned over and confided. Almost every Christmas and Easter, I slip into the back of a church to listen to the music. That's the part I can't resist. And then the scowl returned to her face. She said, if you print that, I'll deny it. And she laughed again as she said it. So, oh, the hardest of the heart. And when you hear Christmas carols, it bothers you, right? Huh, how do they know that? They hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is evident in them. For God has showed it to them. And when they knew God, they didn't want to glorify him, but they did know. And they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. And they knew the judgment of God, that this is right and this is wrong. But they had pleasure in the things that were wrong. And by nature, they just knew. It was in their nature to know. By nature, they knew. And the law was written in their hearts. 
Marvin Olasky, you know, is an extraordinary journalist. He was, for a long time, the editor of World Magazine, and uh, he's a pretty smart cookie. Um, he was raised in a Russian Jewish home, and he went to Yale on scholarship. Not just everybody can do that, right? By the time he was 22 years old, he was a, literally a card-carrying member of the Communist Party. He hated America. He loved everything Russian, and, of course, those were the Cold War years. And he said on November 1st, 1973, I sat in a chair in my room reading Lenin's essay, Socialism and Religion. He wrote, we must combat religion. Well, Lenin's hatred for God was not new to me. But some surprising thoughts began battering my brain. What if Lenin was wrong? What if God does exist? Why was I heading down a dark corridor and refusing even to open a door to a room that could be filled with light? I pondered this suddenly thinking that I had done something very wrong by hugging Marx and Lenin. When I sat down in that chair at 3 p.m., I was an atheist and a communist. At 11 p.m., I got up and spent the next two hours wandering around the cold and dark campus crying out to someone. I slept little in those days, and I wrote my term papers, still from a leftist point of view, and received perfect grades, but my writing was false. And it now felt false. Why didn't I ask the obvious questions about the origins of the universe and of man? Because I didn't want to. The sticking point for me was not God's existence, but his sovereignty. I knew that God existed, but my intellectual pride left me not wanting to admit dependence. Furthermore, sad but true, I wanted the intellectual and sexual promiscuity that modern university life serves up. And an allegiance to God would mean a turning away from all of that. The logical step for me would have been to pursue the question of God's existence. But instead, I tried to escape from the ultimate questions. I'd put my hands over my ears rather than listen to Christmas carols as a child. And I had listened intently as a Yale student when professors suggested that Christianity is a religion for stupid people. Not wanting to espouse what intellectual people identified as superstition. I tried to escape in a variety of ways. But while I was running from reality, God was pursuing. They know. They know. They hold the truth. They hold it tight. They hold it down in unrighteousness. It's evident in them because God has shown them. And they knew God and they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. They knew about the judgment of God, about all that promiscuity business. They knew. And by nature, these things were written in their hearts. Their conscience also bore witness to the same. And their thoughts sometimes accused people of doing wrong. Jeannie Price talked about this before she became a Christian. She didn't want to become a Christian. She said, I declared more loudly than ever that I love things just as they were. I don't want to be a Christian. I like it this way. I declared more loudly than ever that I love things just as they were. But then she says, self-deception is very, very heavy. Fear is very, very heavy. Worry is very, very heavy. The heaviest thing of all is to have no reason to wake up in the morning. I would never have used a word so biblical as burden, but that was mostly because I might have cried with embarrassment or fear of facing things as they were. They say, I don't believe, and I'm an atheist. I don't ever want to believe, but they know. Sir Francis Newport, famous atheist, from years gone by, in his final days, right before he died, all of his atheist friends came to visit him. 
And he told his atheist friends, do not tell me there is no God, for I know there is one, and that I am in his angry presence. They hold the truth. They hold it down. They hold it tight down in unrighteousness. It's evident in them. God has shown it to them. They don't like to retain the knowledge of it. All the talk sleep. Said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. Consequently, I assumed that it had none. We don't know because we don't want to know. Those who detect no meaning in the world generally do so because, for one reason or another, it suits their books that the world should be meaningless. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. And that's why he was an atheist. Thomas Nagel, still living, former professor of philosophy at New York University, says, I speak from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. I want atheism to be true. And I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition and that it is responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism of our time. This is a somewhat ridiculous situation. It's just as irrational to be influenced in one's beliefs by the hope that God does not exist as by the hope that God does exist. C.S. Lewis's famous torment before he finally caved in and became a Christian. I became aware that I was holding something at bay. That's it, right? Who held the truth and unrighteous. Hold down, hold fast, keep it away. I became aware that I was holding something at bay or shutting something out. Really, a young atheist cannot guard his faith too carefully. Dangers lie in wait for him on every side. Remember, I had always wanted, above all things, not to be interfered with. I had always aimed at limited liabilities. The supernatural itself had been to me first an illicit drink. And then, as by a drunkard's reaction, nauseous. You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, the college, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. What we've always known, remember what we've covered so far this morning. I always knew in Japan, in China, in the 1400s Aztec community. I always knew. Whoever created this for us really loves us. And there something touched me or someone. I knew that God existed, but my intellectual pride left me not wanting to admit dependence. That's the part I can't resist. And there is so little time. Can we stand and be dismissed with prayer? Before we go home today, if there's any person who's gathered with us and is still resisting what you know is true, 
I hope that right now, I'd like to give you a moment of silence. Right now, you can go to the Savior the best way you know how and say, okay, Lord, I'm on the hook. I believe I will follow you. And I'd like to give you a chance to do that right now. If you've never done it before, the scripture says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you call on him the best way you know how, you will be saved forever. And if you've been resisting the Lord in some little matter of your Christian life, your already Christian life, maybe you would like to cave in and surrender that to the Lord right now as well. So I'll give you just a moment of silence to do that. And Father, I'd like to speak again on behalf of this congregation and tell you today that we are so glad that you exist and we see your eternal power and your godhood and all of us though we are standing right now in our hearts we are bowing our knees to you we believe and we love you we pray that we'll have your blessing as we go in jesus name amen